Well, this morning we come uh, to the account of a famous shipwreck in, uh, in Acts, and uh, many of you, if you're familiar with Paul's journeys, are familiar with this story. But so far, as we've journeyed with Paul, we've seen his missionary journeys, going all the way back to Acts 13 was the first one of those, his trip to Jerusalem, which we spent quite a few weeks talking about that, and then more recently, this voyage to Rome. And along the way, there have been lots of lessons that we can learn. You know, it's, it's one of the challenges of looking at historical narrative portions of Scripture that give us descriptions, but not necessarily prescriptions of how to do things, is we have to take the experiences that God revealed in His Word under the inspiration of the Spirit and try to see how that might be illustrating some principles that God's Word directly teaches us elsewhere. So that's what we've been doing for many, many months now in this series through the book of Acts, and that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a closer look at the circumstances surrounding Paul's shipwreck on the island of Malta and just kind of see what lessons there might be for us. You know, it was a very serious situation. Uh, as we've seen in recent weeks, the ship was breaking apart. The passengers and the crew were jumping overboard and swimming desperately for shore. Some of them were grabbing hold of anything that could float, bits and pieces of the ship, and they were hoping to get to shore safely on this as yet unidentified island. They didn't even know where they were at this point. But what can we learn about how to respond when things don't go as planned? You know, I was thinking about shipwrecks, and you know, Wendy and I have had the privilege of participating in five or six ministry cruises over the years. I know really suffering for the Lord. But uh, it's, been it's been fantastic. You know, the Lord, I would, you know, be on these seven-day cruises and do some Bible teaching during the day, and then some other uh, keynotes would do some keynote speaking in the evening. And, uh, and thankfully, all of our experiences on board the ships in the open ocean were pretty fun and safe and uneventful, nothing like what we're going to read about this morning. But I do recall hearing a story one time from a fellow cruise passenger about a pretty terrifying cruise that that he endured. And according to his story, the cruise ship was returning from Alaska from a, when this storm broke out. And it was a wicked storm, the worst storm some of the crew on that ship had ever seen. There were squalls, waves up to 40 feet high. The cruise liner was being tossed around like a fishing bobber on Bear Creek Lake. People were throwing up. Plates were falling off tables. Everyone was a nervous wreck. And this passenger recounted how he was so concerned that he asked if he could speak with the pilot, I mean the captain. <clears throat> well, understandably, the captain wasn't available, so the captain's assistant met with the passenger, and he explained that the storm had not caught the captain off guard. The captain knew they were going to hit the storm. He knew he was navigating right into it, but he had to get to their destination because of a tight schedule. The ship had to unload, reload, and get on with its next cruise. Well, this didn't sit too well with this passenger who was uh, telling the story <clears throat> that the captain had knowingly sailed into these troubling waters. Uh, but the captain's assistant tried to calm this frightened passenger by telling him two things. He said, first, do not worry. You can't do anything about this storm. That's the captain's job. And he's not worried. So go back to your cabin and let the captain get the job done. It's, the captain is on the job. But the second thing that he said was this. He said, quote, this ship was built 
with this storm in mind. He said, I know it looks bad, but when we built this boat, we knew that this day was going to come out here on the water, that storms like this would come, and we've already taken that into consideration. The storm did not catch us by surprise, and though it's inconvenient, though it's rough, though it's difficult, you can rest assured this ship can handle this storm, which of course it did, or otherwise that fellow wouldn't have been around to tell the story. But whatever God is letting you go through today, his message is the same. God says, do not worry because I've got this. I've got this. I'm reminded of a time when the disciples were facing turbulence at sea on the Sea of Galilee. The wind was blowing wildly. The waves were crashing over the bow, and they feared the worst. You remember the story I'm talking about, don't you? Where was Jesus during that storm? Well, he was sleeping soundly below deck. He was not the least bit worried. In fact, Jesus rebuked the disciples, and he said, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then, of course, he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm and powerful expression of the power of the Lord. But I'm also reminded of King David. You know, King David was a shepherd turned king, and uh, he experienced in both walks of life all sorts of dangers and trials and difficulties as a shepherd. Uh, you know, the youngest son of Jesse, he was you know, constantly you know, put out in the most dangerous places and given the least desirable jobs. There was often times when he would have to protect the sheep from predatory animals and under the darkness of night. It was, there was many trying times as a shepherd, but boy, if that wasn't a proving ground for what he was going to do when he became king, uh, I mean, it's amazing the kind of things David went through. Enemy nations without, hostile, rebellious you know, Israelites within, uh, his own stumbling blocks and failures and problems that brought on difficulties all their own. It was one a crisis after another. Yet God called him a man after his own heart. And I think David is someone we can all relate to. But his most famous psalm, of course, David wrote many psalms, was Psalm 23. Some of you can probably recite the whole thing. But in the midst of this psalm, right in the middle, this short six verses, he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Literally, the Hebrew there, valley of the shadow of death, is deep, dark valley. And in this psalm, David reflects on life both from the metaphor of a shepherd and also from the metaphor of a king. And in this part right now, he's talking about what it was like as a shepherd who sometimes might have to lead the sheep down into a crevasse or some other dark area where it's particularly dangerous because, you know, uh, animals, the predators could, could hide out and they were more difficult to see them coming. And, and so he's reflecting on that and he thinks about the Lord, his shepherd. Remember, he begins the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. And he says, though I walk through these deep, dark valleys, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So what are you facing today? Is it a deep, dark valley? Is it some storm of life that's tossing you every which way? What are you facing? I want to take a look at how things unfolded after the shipwreck that we talked about two weeks ago and, and just see what we can learn. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. 
in Acts chapter 28. We're just going to look at the first 10 verses. We're, we're gaining on uh, this, uh, the end of the book of Acts, and I'll be shifting gears in my next series and going back to the Old Testament and, and working our way through a book from the Old Testament. But historically speaking, the date is the early February of 60 A.D., and we still have about three to four weeks to go in, in historically in the book of Acts before Paul reaches Rome in late February. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to read the text here, and then we'll go back and take a closer look at each verse. But I think it's a short enough section that it'll be good just to kind of read it uninterrupted. So uh, Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Now, when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But... He shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said, he must be a god. Well, in that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. And Paul went into him and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. And they also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So I think I, I come away with seven lessons here from this passage. You know, as I read through the book of Acts, I, I've kind of gotten in the practice of taking notes on, you know, observations, just things that catch my attention. Because remember, the book of Acts and all historical narratives are not necessarily giving us prescriptions of this is what you must do, this is the doctrinal thing that you have to do. It's more of a, 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 a description of kind of what happens. But when we compare Scripture to Scripture, we see some principles emerge uh, from the page. And I want to give seven lessons uh, from a shipwreck here this morning. The first one is this. Don't panic. Get the facts. Don't panic. Get the facts. In other words, things often seem worse than they are. Don't get lost in the chaos. Figure out where you are so you know what to do next. Take stock of the situation and make sure you've got an accurate assessment of reality. Don't jump to conclusions it's interesting the way Luke words this under the inspiration of the, of the Spirit. When they had escaped, remember, uh, as we talked about in our last message in this series, the, the ship had, they, they smelled land, they thought they were near land, they turned the boat that way, but what happened was it got caught on a sandbar that they hadn't seen, and it was caught right in a spot where headwaters were coming from both directions, and that it just pummeled that boat and ripped it to shreds. And so they had to abandon ship, and then some of them swam, some of them grabbed onto whatever they could, and they made their way uh, to this island. But they didn't know where they were. And so only then do they find out when they get there that they're on the island that is called Malta, Luke uh, tells us. Now, Malta is a small island about 60 miles 
south of Sicily. It had good harbors. Of course, they didn't make it to the harbor, but it was ideally located for trade. If we go back to our map, remember the journey started uh, over there in Caesarea on the east side, and uh, the arrows pointing to this little island of Malta. Malta was 18 miles long and about 8 miles wide, much, much smaller, of course, than Sicily, the island of Sicily to the north. In the previous two weeks, the storm had carried this ship 600 miles west of Fair Havens, where they had been on the island of Crete. And if you remember, Paul had tried to get them to stay there, but, you know, they didn't heed his warning. So don't panic. The first thing they did is they kind of got the water off of them, pulled themselves up onto the shore, and kind of looked around and said, okay, now what? What is the situation? Don't panic. Get the facts. Proverbs reminds us that he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. How many times in our lives do we face a crisis of some kind and we overreact? We draw conclusions. We make assumptions about what's happening before getting all the facts. And then first thing you know, we realize there's more to the story and we realize we overreacted. We, we didn't have all the facts. Get the facts. Know where you are so you can know what to do next. The second lesson, I think, is this. Let others help you. Let others help you. That's hard. You know, we, we don't like to admit that we need help. And especially guys. You know, we're really good at trying to problem solve ourselves. You know, and uh, we, just, we just want to get it figured out. And uh, something about our pride makes us hesitant to accept help from others. But Luke tells us when they got to this island, the natives showed us unusual kindness. The word natives there in Greek is the word barbaroi, the plural. That's where we get our English word barbarians. But barbarians in English does not mean the same thing as barbaroi in Greek. In, in English, we think barbarians, we think uncivilized, you know, savages, uncultured. That's not at all the sense of the word in Greek. It just means non-Greek-speaking people, uh, people that were not Greek-oriented in their civilization. So these were non-Greeks, essentially, and, and the New King James translates it natives, but I just want to make sure you get the picture. These were just normal people, but they were not Greeks, and they showed unusual hospitality to the victims of this uh, shipwreck. They built them a fire. They welcomed them, and of course, this was much appreciated, much needed. These people had just been in a shipwreck. But there were a lot of pretty important people that showed up on the shore that day. You know, you've got the captain of the ship. Remember, God had promised Paul none of them would die. So all 200 and what was it, 76, I think Luke tells us earlier, uh, people had made it to the shore. That included the captain. The owner of the ship was on board. That included the centurion. And, and, and it would have been very easy for any one of those people to sort of take charge, brush aside the natives, these non-Greeks, and just say, no, no, we've got this, you know. First of all, they were probably embarrassed. It would be pretty embarrassing for that captain, and his self-defense mechanism would kick in, kind of like ours does when we make mistakes and need help, but we're afraid to admit it. And, and he could have easily shunned it, but they welcomed the help of others. Proverbs says, uh, better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. I love that verse because it reminds me that God puts people in our path to help us. 
We may only meet them in some cases for a short while, the person that pulls over to help us change a flat tire, uh, whatever the situation may be. We may never see them again. But they, they were there at the right time for the right purpose to help us. But they may also be people that are in our usual circle of acquaintances and contacts, and they're there for a reason. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to let others help. I mean, we can't always go crying to mom and dad, right? Or we can't always go crying to our brother or sister or our relatives, you know? We like to ask relatives because in most cases, and I know there's always strained relationships with, with relatives. I'm not uh, blind to that reality. But in general, we love to go to relatives because, you know, they sort of have to help, right? I mean, no one's going to turn you away. Okay, you're my brother, I'll help. Or okay, you're my son, I'll help you, right? So there's a certain security in doing that. But I think this proverb reminds us that, you know, they may not always be there. And so get to know your neighbors. Get to know your friends. Um, I'm the worst at this. I, I really am the kind of person that would just as soon try to do things himself. You know, in school, I always hated the group projects, you know, because I thought I was smarter than all my people in the group, and they were just bringing me down. You know, they were slowing me down. i just as soon do the project myself and let them put their name on it, you know. I didn't care. I just didn't. I just wanted to do it myself. I think I've told this story in a different context before, but when we first bought some property, when we were uh, hadn't been married that long, we just had a couple of kids, maybe three. I could, no, I think it was just, yeah, three kids. I can't remember. Um, but I can't remember their names. So there's that. But anyway, we bought this property, and I was so excited. I used to come home from where I was teaching school full-time at a college at the time, and I'd come home every day, and I bought a a John Deere tractor, a big tractor from a neighbor who upgraded his tractor. And I'd get out there on that tractor. I didn't, it, it didn't matter if the property needed to be mowed or not. I'd mow it three or four times a week just to push that you know, brush hog behind me and, and, and get out there. But the problem was every time it rained, we had a pond on the property and it was a low setting, a low area of the property. And every time it rained, it would just get muddy and, 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 and bogged down. And the tractor was forever getting stuck there. And then I'd have to, you know, hitch up a toe strap, pull it out with my SUV, put like four or five toe straps together so I was way far away. I didn't want to get my, my car stuck and pull it out and I'd do different things. But it just, I was a slow learner. It kept happening. And I remember one time it got stuck. I just tried everything. I put rocks under the wheels. I tried counterbalancing the weight, tried pulling it. It just, I couldn't get it out. Well, my neighbor was watching across the fence and he kept saying, hey, I can help you. I got my, I can come pull you. I need some help. No, no, I got it. I got it. You know, he was about my age too, uh, but he was, he was a farmer. I mean, he, this guy knew what he was doing. Uh, he wasn't a pretend farmer. Um, but uh, I can, no, no, I got it. I got it. Well, finally, I, I, I kind of pushed my pride aside and I, I'm going to, there's no way this tractor's coming out unless I get help. So I asked him, I, said, I went over to the fence. I said, hollered at him. I said, hey, if you don't mind, I, I'd sure appreciate some help. Well, I figured he would just come on over on his tractor, but to make an already embarrassing situation even worse, he sent his 12-year-old son over on their tractor to pull me out. So here I am getting pulled out of the mud by a 12-year-old uh, boy. But it's hard. It's hard to ask for help. Let others help you. That's, God intends for us not to live life in a vacuum, but to interact with others. And um, lots of ways God can help us. He can help us through angels. Hebrews tells us that, but he can help us through people. So let others help you. Number three, when you're facing a shipwreck, be alert because Satan does not quit. 
Satan does not quit. No sooner does Paul crawl ashore, having escaped the shipwreck, and he's attacked by a snake. I mean, this is incredible. I'm sure Paul must have thought, you have got to be kidding me. This was the third time, by the way, on this journey to Rome that Paul had faced a life-or-death situation. Remember, first there was the, the storm at sea, and they all thought they were going to die, and God told Paul, no, not, no one's going to die. Everybody stay on the ship. Then, of course, there was when they ran ashore on the sandbar, and the boat was breaking up before them. And now here he is on you know, the island, and he gets bitten by a poisonous snake. And I, I'm sure he, if it were me, I'd be thinking, you have got to be kidding me. Can't I catch a break? But Satan's relentless. Satan's relentless. So Luke tells us when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, it's also interesting to note that Paul made himself useful. You know, he didn't just, you know, it's one thing to accept help. It's another thing to just sit back and, and you know, break out the, the beach towel and say, okay, if you want to help, go ahead. Can you bring me a drink? I'll be sitting right here. You know, Paul put himself to work, and, and he didn't expect everyone to just serve him and do everything. He went out, picked up some sticks, but unknowingly there was this viper in, mixed up in this bundle of wood. It was cold, um, and, uh, and so, you know, it was winter, and probably that's where this snake was hibernating or, you know, wintering. And, but, of course, when he throws it on the fire, that got the snake's attention right quick, and he uh, comes out, and he bites Paul on the hand. And uh, it's interesting what happens next, but I think the principle here is always be ready. God has not given us a timetable of how many trials and tribulations of life we might face. And as I've talked about before, remember, there are various reasons we might go through shipwrecks of life, right? It's not, it's not always, you know, God's discipline. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But uh, whatever the reason, we can't just sit back and presume that this is the last one. Paul, going all the way back to his, you know, experiences in Caesarea and Jerusalem, he was one trial after another, and each one he sort of came out on top thinking he had dodged a bullet, and yet then another one came along. And uh, Satan just doesn't quit. That's why Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, which he has a lot to say about spiritual warfare there, that area was, was really ripe with uh, spiritual activity, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's the New King James, wiles. Wiles is a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. And the Greek word literally means scheming or cunning strategy. Satan is always strategizing and scheming to hurt us. You know, Jesus said he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what he does. So be alert. Uh, it may not be over. And our, we need to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith. Number four is resist the urge to think retributively. So this is what I alluded to a moment ago. I want to kind of camp out here for a second. Resist the urge to think retributively. It's interesting, these people thought the snake bite was proof of Paul's guilt. You know, he must have done something wrong. Look what God's doing to him. You know, he thought he had escaped fate by escaping the storm, but you can't outrun fate. God's going to get you, and now he's, he's judging Paul, and he's going to kill Paul because he must be some murderer. He was a prisoner after all. Remember, they didn't know this Paul, but uh, he was one of the prisoners. Um, so that's retributive thinking. 
And that was the thinking of these islanders. Uh, but as someone has pointed out, that's a very poor philosophy, and it's an even worse theology, because God does not operate retributively. God operates first and foremost by grace. He's a gracious God. So it says, when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, well, no doubt this man's a murderer. He's getting what he deserves. He get, he's getting what's coming to him. You know, though he might have escaped the sea, oh, fate caught up with him and, 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 and justice was served and he's going to suffer for whatever he did. Now, how many of us have had similar thoughts, both towards others, but also in our own lives? How many times when something negative happens do you go, oh, man, I must have done something wrong. What did I do? You start rehearsing your life. Oh, man, I shouldn't have skipped my quiet time yesterday. Man, if only I'd have prayed longer the other day. Or, you know, I should have been nicer to my wife or my kids, you know. And you start rehearsing these things because we're prone to think that God operates retributively. That he's some that it's some kind of a quid pro quo arrangement, and as long as I'm doing good, good things are going to happen. And therefore, when bad things happen in my life, I immediately think, "Oh, I must have done something wrong. God is punishing me. God is disciplining me." But the reality is, there are any number of reasons bad things happen. I've talked about this previously, but. Uh, obviously, sometimes when we sin as believers, God does discipline us. Hebrews says, to whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, right? Uh, and so God's correcting us. He's, hopefully his corrections are gentle. But yeah, there are consequences when we don't follow the Lord in practical righteousness, living out the Spirit within us. Uh, but there are other reasons bad things might happen, one of which is we just live in a fallen world. And sometimes bad things happen to good people, um, it's just the results of, of sin in general in the world. Not every flat tire is God's way of spanking you. Now, he's testing you through everything that happens, good, bad, and otherwise, you know, whether it's direct discipline or just an indirect unfortunate circumstance because we live in a fallen world. Still, God's testing us, and we should respond in faith, and we should have patience and trust him no matter what. But there's also a third way that sometimes bad things happen, and that is it could be direct attacks from the enemy. Sometimes the enemy wants to kind of get us to turn our backs on the Lord, and he wants to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to destroy our faith, destroy our joy, those types of things. But the point is, through it all, God's grace is sufficient. This, is, this tendency for us to think in, retributively is what I call the, the Coke machine philosophy. And uh, you've probably heard me share this before if you've been following Not By Works for very many years. Uh, but, it, you know, it's like when you walk up to a Coke machine and you put in your, you know, 50 cents. Of course, these days it's more like $5, but whatever you put in to get your Coke. And, uh, I mean, I, I still can't believe the day they started putting credit card machines on Coke machines. It's just unreal. But anyway, you put in your money and you push, you know, Dr. Pepper. And you expect Dr. Pepper to fall out below a can or a bottle or whatever, and, and everything is as it should be. All is right with the world. But sometimes you put in your money and you push your selection and nothing comes out. So what do you do? You push it a little harder and you keep pushing it. Nothing comes out. So then you resort to that completely worthless and, and utterly foolish 
task of pushing that long little metal button that sticks out of the machine, which is supposed to return your change. I've never had it work. I don't know about you, but you keep pushing that thing. Well, at least give me my money back. I did my part. This machine didn't do its part. Give me my money back. Nothing comes out. So then you go to the manager of the gas station or the hotel clerk in the hotel down in the lobby, and now you're really mad because you've had to go all the way back downstairs if you're on a third or fourth floor. You've already got your pajamas on for the night, and you're like, you know, this machine stole my money. It's just not fair, right? Or what's even worse is sometimes you, you put your money in, you push Dr. Pepper, and the fellow that loaded the machine was off by a row, and you get Diet Pepsi or some ungodly drink like that, right? And then now you're really mad because you've gotten something that some people think is of value anyway, but it's not what you wanted. It's not what you wanted, right? And so you start shaking that machine, and you start pounding, and you, start, and you get upset. That's the way a lot of people view God, like he's some kind of cosmic Coke machine. As long as we put in our part, we'll get what's coming to us. And uh, if we do good, we're going to get good things. If we do bad, we're going to get bad things. But that's not the picture of God that he gives us in his word. God is gracious. Certainly we understand there's a reaping and sowing principle in Scripture. You know, you play with fire, you're going to get burned sometimes. But that's just the practical consequences of sin. Sometimes, you know, you do live a godly life life. You follow the Lord. You're walking right with Him. You're walking by faith, not by sight. You're walking in the Spirit. And you still suffer. And when that happens, you're going to have God's grace. It's going to be poured out upon you. I love what Paul said in the last letter that he wrote to Timothy. This would be about six years after the events that we're reading about this morning. After he gets to Rome, after his first Roman imprisonment, then he's let loose, then he gets back in prison again, and he's uh, going to be martyred not long after he writes this letter. And he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. In other words, the sufferings is just part of life. We live in a fallen world. The world we live in is not the world God, the way God made it. We messed it up. But he goes on to say, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling? Watch this. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began. See, that's God's operating principle. His purpose and grace. His purpose and grace. That's why when it comes to eternal salvation, we read it's by grace that we've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, if, if God acted retributively, then Jesus wouldn't, have had to die on the cross. We could just work harder, do better, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and, and become good enough to, to meet God's standard. But that's not the way God operates because it wasn't possible. Um, remember when Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, describes being caught up to the third heaven and he had this thorn in the flesh and he pleaded with the Lord to take it from him and he wouldn't. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. See, he goes on to say, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If God operated retributively, we would have something to boast about, right? You know, like, like we saw in, in, uh, in Ephesians, if it weren't the gift of God, we could boast. Oh, look what I did. Look how good I am. You know, hope you're as good as me so you can get into heaven someday, right? 
But when we understand that God's grace is the prevailing paradigm in our lives, then it prompts us to trust Him. Look to Him. Give Him all the glory because it's the power of Christ resting on us. Now, we don't want to presume on grace. Paul addresses that in Romans 5 and 6. He says, yeah, it's true. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and praise God for that. But that doesn't mean we should just go out and start sinning. When we do that, yeah, there are going to be consequences for it. Don't presume on that grace. But neither should we assume that when some negative experience happens, we find ourselves shipwrecked on some unknown island, we find ourselves in the midst of some station of our journey where we're not even sure what's going on, no need to shake your fist at God and say, you know, why did you do this? And what did I do to deserve it? Or I don't deserve this, God. I wanted a Dr. Pepper. No need to do that. God is gracious. God is gracious. And, and that grace model of daily living is so critical in our sanctification process. It reminds us of the grace of God in our eternal salvation. So resist the urge to think retributively when you find yourself shipwrecked. Number five, do not underestimate God. Do not underestimate God. So here's Paul, bitten by this dangerous viper. He shakes off the creature into the fire and suffers no harm. He was completely unaffected by the viper's bite. We're going to find out in verse 6, as you heard me read a little bit ago, that he didn't even swell up, right? So here's the point. God will do whatever it takes to fulfill his purpose even miraculously healing his servant in order to make sure he's able to get to Rome and share the gospel, which is what God has wanted all along. Remember when Paul wrote the book of Romans uh, in, during his third missionary journey, he wrote how he so desired to get to Rome and preach the gospel where it had never been preached before. And God had promised him on this journey that, that, that he would make it there. And so, yeah, a snake bites Paul. And God is God. God is able to protect Paul from it. He's doing all kinds of things, showing his power, showing his blessing upon Paul and making sure that he's going to fulfill his purpose. Don't underestimate God. No matter how bad the situation might be, no matter how rough the, the shipwreck that you might be facing is, God, God can handle it. Kind of like that passenger was told by the ship's assistant captain. You know, this ship's you know, we got this. We got it under control, right? Uh, do you remember when uh, Jesus was talking to the disciples and he was talking about how difficult it is for wealthy to trust God? And, uh, and it is, you know, it's, it's easier for people of means to trust in their means rather than God and recognize that they have nothing that's going to, you know, uh, merit anything before a holy God. And in fact, Jesus then makes that rather humorous analogy. And he says, you know, it's harder for a rich person to get into the kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he was talking there about a literal sewing needle in the Greek. And a camel was the most huge animal that they would have known of. So it's quite a humorous picture to think of a massive camel trying to fit through the eye of a sewing needle. Well, of course, the disciples are like, well, if that's the case, how can anybody be saved? And what does Jesus say? He says, with men it's impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. And indeed, many people who have uh, been blessed with wealth get saved. They understand. They have a proper perspective on money. And they understand that they still need God's grace. And they trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. And, and, and their wealth, even though more often than not it's going to lead people astray, it doesn't in this case. Because God is God. 
Or remember when Gabriel approached Mary and she was told that she was with child through the Holy Spirit and that she was carrying the Christ child. And when she was first told this by Gabriel, she said, wait a minute, how can this possibly be? I've never been with a man. I can't possibly be pregnant. And what did Gabriel say? Well, with God, nothing will be impossible. See, God always is able to do whatever it takes to accomplish his purpose, right? And his purpose in Paul's life was to get him to Rome. So do not underestimate God. No matter how desperate and bleak things look, God is still God. Number six, never steal God's glory in the midst of a crisis. Don't make it about you. See, the islanders were focused on Paul after he was healed uh, or, or protected supernaturally from this snake bite. He wasn't healed. He was protected. Um, and they kind of got their bearings a little bit. They said, oh, he must be a god. He must, he must be a god. They superstitiously assumed that, well, if he's not dead because he's a murderer, well, now he must be a god. <laughs> Again, still that retributive thinking. Uh, Luke describes it this way. They were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down. They kept looking at him for a long time. You know, you can kind of sit sit there. You, know, you just get this picture of these islanders watching this happen. And they're thinking, man, I'm glad that's not me. And, man, that, that prisoner, he's probably a murderer. That's why this is happening. Just wait, he's going to die any second now. And then they're sitting back watching. A little more time goes on. Just wait. It's going to swell up. You watch. You watch. It'll swell up. And then he's going to fall over. And it never happened. It never happened. Why? Because God was getting the glory. And so then these islanders, who are not believers, say, oh, they must be a god. And they gave the glory for what Paul had just experienced to Paul rather than to the one true God. And Paul, no doubt, seized this opportunity to share the gospel because Although Luke doesn't tell us this, we know in a similar situation, that's exactly what Paul did. You remember when Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey were in Lystra, and the, the crowd there thought they were gods, and they started worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And what does Paul and Barnabas do? They, they were beside themselves. They tear their clothes, and they run in, and they say, Men, what are you doing? Why are you doing these things? We're just men like you are, with the same nature as you are. And we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. And he goes on to share the gospel in the, in the, next, the following verses. Never steal God's glory. Paul was good about that. He understood, having been the worst of sinners, met the Lord on the road to Damascus, and seen God use him time and again. He understood where the glory Belong. And he frequently says that in his letters. For example, Philippians, he says, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Or in his first letter to Timothy, he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In the midst of your crisis, give God the glory. Even while you're still in a holding pattern, while you're still in a waiting pattern, God still deserves the glory. Lord, I don't know why I'm here or how you're going to resolve this or where we're headed, but you get the glory. And then finally, the seventh lesson is look for opportunities to minister to others. Look for opportunities to minister to others. It's just amazing to me that these uh, folks from the ship, having endured what they did, some of them prisoners, Paul, of course, a prisoner, 
are still able to serve the islanders. Luke tells us in that region there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island. That phrase, leading citizen of the island, means that he was the Roman-appointed governor of that island. And uh, he received us and entertained us courteously uh, for three days. By the way, just a side note, another application here is, you know, perhaps your trial is intended to open the doors for you to find yourself before prominent people. Maybe this is part of the journey. Maybe God wants to give you the opportunity to interact with, you know, famous people so that you can share the gospel with them. Who knows? But it happened that the father of Publius, this governor, lay sick of fever and dysentery. So Paul went into him, prayed, laid hands on him, and healed him. Even in the midst of this shipwreck, Paul was used by God uh, to heal others. And so when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. So this is the ministry expanse. Word of the healing spread across the island, and Paul was able to heal many other sick people who had diseases. God's power was still working through Paul as strongly as ever, in spite of what had to be his physical exhaustion caused by the sea voyage and the shipwreck. Even though he was a prisoner, he was serving God and blessing others. You know, uh, one of the principles that Wendy and I come back to again and again, I wish we remembered it more consistently in our journey uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a foolproof system. It always works. But whenever we're facing a tough time, whenever we're under attack, we've, been, we've faced all kinds of attacks in 30-some-odd years of ministry. Uh, hopefully, and, and this happens often but not enough, we will stop and think, let's set aside our hurts and let's shift the attention and see who we can help. And so then we'll call up you know, a, a young couple and just invite them to dinner or we'll write an encouraging email to someone. We'll just check in with a friend we haven't talked to and say, how you doing? And inevitably... It's an opportunity to help them, to encourage them, to share Scripture with them. And first thing you know, we've forgotten all about our troubles, right? And, and, and so look for opportunities to minister to others, even in the midst of your trial. So the islanders in response, as we read here in the last verse, uh, provided everything that this crew needed to continue their journey. We'll pick up with that next week. But God orchestrated things so that they would have everything they need for the remainder of this journey to Rome, because that's what, Paul's, that's what God's plan was for Paul, to get him to Rome. So let's review before we close out. When you're facing a shipwreck, don't panic. Get the facts. Don't jump to conclusions. Take stock of what's going on and where you are. Really understand the situation. Secondly, let others help when needed. Thirdly, be alert. Be on the lookout. Satan doesn't quit. And there may be another shoot a drop right around the corner. Fourth, resist the urge to think retributively. Recognize that God is always a God of grace. Do not underestimate God. He can do anything no matter how bleak the situation might look. Give credit where credit's due. Never steal God's glory. And then look for opportunities to minister to others. So I don't know, you know, whether you're facing a storm of life, or you're facing a deep, dark valley, whatever metaphor you want to use. But chances are there are people here within the sound of my voice that are. And if you're not, chances are you've been there, and you'll probably be there again if the Lord tarries is coming. So these are some just principles that we see 
you know, described in the book of Acts that I think scripture bears up these principles uh, elsewhere to keep in mind when we're facing a tough time. Now, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, uh, that's step number one. You have to experience God's initial uh, expression of grace, which you receive by faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, if you already have done that, praise God. Walk by faith. You know, continue to walk in the faith that saved you. Uh, if we doubt, if we depart from the faith, none of that's going to change what God did the moment we believe the gospel, but it will strengthen our faith. It will keep us uh, rising above the, the floodwaters. But if you've never done that, today's the day of salvation. In simple childlike faith, place your trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin. So here's the takeaway. Don't let the shipwrecks of life paralyze you. God is still at work. He's able. Keep trusting Him. Keep serving Him. Keep doing the next thing. Keep your eyes focused on the, the spiritual aspect of the situation. What is God really doing here? Remember, the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us someday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, just really interesting passage. Uh, historically, thank you for giving us a glimpse through your word of, of how Paul interacted with you in, in this difficult circumstance. I pray that we would uh, have enough faith uh, and be strong enough in our own lives to be able to face battles with the same level of courage and confidence and steadfast faith. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.